0: It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit Ellerslie.com. So, we are already at uh, session eight, or episode eight in this series. And, uh, you know, if we were to even stop and do a quick uh, assessment, even inside of Eric, uh, I am thoroughly enjoying the process of going through this. It's very different than any of my other series, and it's hard to even describe those differences. And I think it's because the definition of a storyline is not as clear. Uh, So my creative allowance is very high. In other words, I can do a lot of things when you're dealing with a 60-year period of time and so my desire is just to be prayerful as I'm going through to say, God, what is on your heart? If you were the one giving this series, what would you do? And so you're going to see me emphasize certain things, but as I'm, I'm constantly changing my, my map and my outline. It's just every time I sit down, I'm like, okay, I'm going to, well, maybe I should go this way instead of this way. And so originally when I was putting this together, It was called uh, Spiritual Lessons from uh, the FBI Files. And then I was thinking, uh, Spiritual Lessons from the Secret FBI Files. And then I threw that out and I go, you know what, that is going to be very engaging. Everyone would be so interested that they would listen to it for the wrong reasons. No, that isn't the reason I I went away from it. But that is the truth, guys. Uh, That is so intriguing. And yet I was originally going to be dealing with this through a different lens. And I was gonna come at it from the advent of the FBI and how that has impacted our culture and the expansion of government and has influenced the world in which we live and the church in which we live. And you'll notice I haven't really talked about the FBI this entire time. In this message, I'm going to, in a very light way too. I know a lot about the FBI I am not going to be talking about. And the FBI is a, highly sensitized topic today. And I'm really trying to avoid the highly sensitized things in the wrong way. I don't want to get us all stirred up in the wrong way. I want to get us centered in the right way on what matters most. And so I I keep emphasizing the fact that I don't want to be known in my life as a conservative or as a Republican. I want to be known as a Christian. And though I may lean conservative in my conclusions, which is basically, if I was going to define my conservatism, I believe the word of God to be in fact and in actuality, the word of God. I believe it to be accurate. So therefore, if I believe that to be accurate, I'm going to apply that to every area of my life as if it's true. And so call that a conservative if you want. I call it a Christian. And yet that is my leaning. And so I happen to lean in the more conservative interpretations on most things, if you were to look at me politically or socially. But I don't want to be defined by that. And technically, I don't want you to be defined by that. I want the church of Jesus Christ to wear on our sleeve, not our political dogmas, but Jesus. So when someone encounters us, they know us first and foremost for Jesus. If they're going to reject Jesus, they can reject us. But we don't want them rejecting us because of our immigration stance, or our stance on gun control. That is not actually what we want to be rejected for. We want to stand for Jesus. And so that is one of the clear agendas I have in this series called Spiritual Lessons from Black and White America. So in this series, we are going from 1914 to 1974, and we're sort of unpacking the cultural uh, cataclysmic events that are going to take place here, that are going to define our world in which we live now. And it's interesting how few of us actually have any idea what happened in this time. There are certain things I could mention And I could mention something like World War I, and you've heard of it, right? You've heard of that. I could mention the Great Depression. You could go, oh, yeah, yeah, I've I've heard of that. I could mention World War II. You go, oh, yeah, sure, sure. In other words, you know that things happened in this time, and yet the reasons they happened and uh, how that impacted the world in which we live is of great import to us. Part 8, the legendary G-Men. I don't know if you guys have ever heard the term "G-men." It's it's uh, one of those cool phrases where if you say it, you know, you sort of feel cool, uh, even. And the, the G-men themselves were cool, and so you could try and say it. You know, you could say it to yourself, and you feel sort of cool when you say it. But G-men it was short for government men. Uh, these are men that worked for the government in a very specific uh, department known as the FBI, and they were the G-men. Uh, so that is going to come from a story that most people doubt ever actually happened and that is the capture of machine gun kelly when he was cornered uh, the fbi had been hunting him and this is one of the fbi's first big catches where they're going to get uh, a machine gun kelly and machine gun kelly is going to be caught off guard and he's going to say don't shoot don't shoot. Uh, don't shoot, G-men. Don't shoot, G-men. You know, And so the G-men are going to act like, oh, well, he's the one that came up with the name. We're just adopting it. But they, I think, liked it. And so they're going to refer to themselves as G-men from this point forward. So, by the way, if you don't know who Machine Gun Kelly is, hopefully even his nickname would show you that he was a gangster. But uh, that's one of the, it's part of the lore of FBI history. F- the FBI is very interesting because it loves to uh, add a little detail and a little pizzazz to the storyline. So the Ludi affinity for the G Man, the attraction runs deep. There's something about this, and, and it could be that, you know, my granddad, and I never talked with my granddad uh, Ludi about the FBI or anything like that. One thing I do know is my dad wanted to be an FBI G-Man. And so when I say the affinity runs deep, and I grew up with a, a certain love interest in this storyline, and which makes, you, makes me susceptible uh, to overlook certain things in the FBI. Uh, The FBI is somewhat of a shady history, I mean, if I'm going to be honest, and yet when you see it as a positive and you see it as a worker for the good of America, you have a tendency to overlook some of the seedier elements uh, of it. Like, for instance, if they're going to wiretap a bad guy, the wiretapping itself is illegal, but since it's a bad guy that they're wiretapping, you're willing to overlook that because you, know, you trust them. They, their motives are good. They're, they're trying to keep America clean and pure. And so it's very interesting. Your take on the FBI usually has to do with what the FBI's political slant at the time may be. If they are trying to hound conservatives and trying to, you know, you know dig up dirt on conservatives, then we're very concerned about the FBI. If they're trying to dig up dirt on the liberals, well, you know what, sometimes we need to do you know, dirty things to make sure we keep this world clean. And that's part of the challenge of this secret police operation in the United States that we have uh, given rise to. But it does exist. This, is, this has always just sort of been a part of my history, and I don't know, maybe it was a part of your history too. I, I, I don't know how, this, how the history of the FBI has affected you, but so many memories growing up. I mean, I have a, an emotion that is attached to the idea of the FBI, and it was always positive. It's funny, because if you ask me now what my emotion is attached to the FBI, I wouldn't necessarily say it's positive. Isn't that weird? So even though I grew up with a very, very positive spin, I don't know that it's positive anymore. So this is at my granddad. His name was Reg, Reg Lutie, Reginald Lutie, at his memorial. And I I can't say that I knew him well enough. I knew him more as a grandpa than as a a man in his prime. And so at his memorial, I, I was actually really intrigued by some of the things that were said about him. Uh, Because he was just sort of a serious man, and you know he wanted it done a certain way. And I sort of got him in the grumpy season of his life, and I I didn't really know him in a warm sense. And so this was just an interesting statement, which reminds me of the G-Man, which is why I say the Ludies obviously have an affinity for this. Reg Ludie, this is some guy that got up. I don't even know who the guy was. Some friend of his... Reg Ludi had the style of the times down pat. The pressed-tailored suit, the perfectly matched tie, the shiny shoes, and of course the fedora weren't so stylishly perfect on his head. We all wanted to dress like Reg Ludi dressed. I was like, huh. What never thought about wanting to dress like my grandpa. Uh, but it was just an interesting thought to think that in this time, he would have been in the time of the G-Men. That would have been the time. And even the description of how he dressed was like. That's classic G-man. And so I was sort of proud of my grandpa, you know, when I heard that. The Ludy secret of success and source of utter misery. So what I'm going to call the Ludy, and this is a Ludy line trait and attribute. Not every Ludy gets it. Uh, there's a few adopted Ludies who are like, yeah, I didn't get that. But uh, there's a we'll call it the secret of success. There's one one of the reasons why. Uh, a loody could be successful at what they do is based on this. But also, one of the reasons a loody may be miserable <laughs> is because of this. It's weird how things like that could happen. But here's a quote just to try and give you a, a, a hint at it. If I do this, I want to be the best at it. I want to do this perfectly. So, just to give you an idea, this is sort of a crash course in, in loodydom. But I'm in high school and I go out for the track team. And I've always been the fastest runner in every sport that I've ever been in. We do a sprint run and I'm always gonna win. If I don't win, then I'm upset and I'm mad and I wanna redo it. We're redoing that. Because if I don't win it, something's wrong. So I get, we have this guy move to town named Joel Horn. And you know, it's fine. I don't mind Joel coming to town. I didn't know though that he was one of the fastest guys in the state. And so when I go out for track, Suddenly, I don't win the sprint. Joel does. I couldn't handle that. I could not. Ha- I quit the track team because I was the second fastest and I wasn't the fastest. This is in high school, and if I could say it this way, classic Ludi right there. Now, this is a, that is a terrible quality, by the way. What I just described is not something I want you to mimic, but there is a desire within me to always be perfect at what I do and to be the best at what I do. Now, this is something God had to touch way back in the day because I wasn't given to Jesus back in this time period. And if I told you stories of high school, you'd recognize, no, hopefully that wasn't your Christian uh, behavior. No, that was my selfish, uh, unredeemed, loody behavior. Yes. And it's not the, the prettiest thing, but like Leslie and I are high producers like, we, I think we still have the record for the most books written by a couple in their 20s, you know, in the world, you know, in world history, technically, you could say it that way. And so, high producers is what we are. And if we're going to do it, we're going to do it well. And so, you look at someone like Avi, you know, my daughter, in gymnastics, and she's very similar to me. She can't lose. And so, if she's going to do it, well, she has to win. And this is the way I always feel when we would, we had, you guys didn 't see that, did you? Uh, thank you Aaron uh, and i won 't even say on the podcast what just happened, lest they uh, no my my clicker went flying out of my hand uh, so but thank you, Aaron, for picking that up for me uh, so but when we used to have uh, something called in the core and we 'd do it in this this chapel, clear out all the chairs, and it 's a training, and whenever the coach or whoever the trainer was made a competition amongst all the athletes it's like oh no and i would actually i mean i would i don't like it when they do that because now i have to win there's no other option i can't come in second and it is miserable it really is it's a source of misery too because now i have to work hard i could just have a relaxing morning, and just get a good workout and instead i have to win it doesn't matter what it is and it's a propensity avi has it too i mean i've watched this But this is, I'm going to try and tag whatever this is, because some of you are staring at me going, that is the weirdest thing I have ever heard. And yet, it is a great secret of my strength, right? It's one of the reasons why I do what I do, and I do it the way I do it. But it is not always a good trait. It is a dangerous trait. And J. Edgar Hoover, the guy who's going to start the FBI, uh, very similar, Okay, so he's going to have this quality and the way he is going to lead the FBI is going to be utterly miserable for most people that work for him. Because he is going to take his demand for perfection that he has upon himself and he's gonna put it on every guy around him. If we're gonna be a bureau in in this government, we're gonna be the best one. If we're gonna do this, we're gonna do it better than anyone else would do it. And you could say, oh, standing ovation, what a great quality. Most people that worked for J. Edgar Hoover hated it. <laughs> so it's not always a good quality. I'm just noting that. Colossians 2, 20 through 23. Now, this is going to be sort of a premise point for where I'm going. If you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why is though living in the world do you subject yourself to regulations? Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle which all concerning, concern things which perish with the using, according to the commandments and doctrines of men. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom and self-imposed religion, false humility and neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. So there is a quality that someone of my deportment thinking makeup can have. And that is that they gravitate towards extremely hard work and diligence. And they have this sense that if they do it just right, if they are perfect, that somehow that equates to points. It equates to some kind of success. It's 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 a perfectionistic propensity. And when you take that into your spiritual life, it will kill you. Because you end up with something like this: do not touch, do not taste, do not handle. Okay, what do I need to do to be righteous is the question. And so we want to figure out the law. We want to figure out exactly how to do it, what I to dot, what T to cross. And if we just get that right, then, okay, am I fine now? A- a- am I clean now? Am I righteous now? Now, most of you, if not all of you, know the gospel well enough to know that that flies in the face of what the truth is. You can know the truth and still default back to this behavior. You can know that you are saved by grace, you can know that Jesus Christ is your righteousness, and yet, you can find yourself creating a list of if I could just do this, if I get up early enough in the morning, and I have a quiet time that's at least, I mean, half hour to 45 minutes long. I know, God, I'm right on the edge of being disapproving, uh, or you being disapproving of me, if it's only you know 30 minutes. So I'll try, if I can, get to 45 minutes and I'll at least have a chapter of the Bible read, and I'll at least have one verse memorized, and I'll at least have prayed for 15 minutes. And if I do that, God, am I at least hitting the bare minimum where you will not frown in my direction? That is so weird. Where do we get that from? Now, some of you are not anything like me, and you're like, okay, that is strange. Eric, you have a problem. Well, I'm not saying I'm doing this today. This isn't how I think today. This is how I'm prone to think if my thinking is not renewed. This is like default package for the Eric Lutie personality type, is that I want to do it right, and I'm ready to work hard. And so God, just give me the outline of what it is, and I will do it, and I will do it well. I am an extremely disciplined guy, and if you get me on a task like, Eric, this is what you need. These 10 things, you do them every day, and your life will shine. Okay, I'll do those 10 things. I am built for a rule uh, or a list uh, to check off boxes. It's like, that's my life, I love that. And yet it's also my great danger because I can turn Christianity into check boxes instead of a relationship with my Lord. This is a relationship. I don't have a check box for my marriage. It's like, okay, wake up and say you love her. You know, at, you know when, after brushing teeth, you know, even with uh, your uh, toothpaste still in your mouth, mumble something like, you're so pretty. You know, and you have your check boxes, and it's not actually how it works. It needs to be a genuine outflow of actual affection. Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle. It sounds like such a wise way to do it, which is why we default back to it. So in the Roaring Twenties, which is where we're at, by the way. Guys, we were uh, lingering in the Twenties. We were talking about the rise of the White Hoods, which was sort of a disturbing message, the last one, talking about the Ku Klux Klan. Uh, And then before that, we had Al Capone. You guys remember that? And so we're still in the Roaring Twenties, and America realized in the Roaring Twenties that it needed an answer to the problem of rampant sin. We have a huge breakdown uh, of our culture in the in the 20s so you have the gangster movement remember you have prohibition which is illegalized alcohol and we've never drank more alcohol in this country than in the roaring 20s and what an irony and so we have the rise of the gangsters we have an immoral uh debasedness that is beginning to creep into our country and we don't have the ability the local police forces do not have the ability to handle this stuff. And so the bad guys are actually overwhelming the good guys, if you could say it that way. Immorality is overwhelming those that want to stand for morality. And it's looking pretty dark in the 20s, guys. And so there was a need for a police force with a bit more um, power. And so this is going to make us susceptible to what we could call a federal level, which is, means uh, nationwide, it's something from the federal government instead of a, a state government or a local government, we are going to become susceptible to calling on the federal side of our government to start intervening to help us deal with our problems at the state level. So the FBI.org site says it this way. Now, the FBI.org, you have to recognize it has a slant. It's Pro FBI, And so just so you know that as we go through everything, and I'm not anti-FBI, I'm just not pro in the sense. And that's more of just of what's happened with it over time. Law enforcement was outgunned, literally, and ill-prepared at this point in history, 1924, to take on the surging national crime wave. Dealing with the bootlegging and speakeasies was challenging enough, but the Roaring Twenties also saw bank robbery, kidnapping, auto theft... Gambling and drug trafficking become increasingly common crimes. More often than not, local police forces were hobbled by the lack of modern tools and training, and their jurisdictions stopped abruptly at their borders. A jurisdiction is a ruling territory, and the police had to stop at state lines. They couldn't go beyond that. And so all a bad guy had to do was cross the state line, and they could do this you know, on the other side of the line, like, hey, hey. and this, the police couldn't do anything. I mean, how frustrating is that? And unless there was a violation across state lines, a federal police force wouldn't be able to do anything. And so there's this growing notion for an increased strength for a federal police force. So so the idea of a federal level, secret police service. Now, when you think of the FBI, you're not thinking secret police. You're not thinking that because no one wants you to think that, right? But at this time, this is a common discussion in many countries. And for instance, Germany is going to come up with its secret police under Hitler. And this is a common thing that is emerging of how you can deal with things maybe in a local level and then how you can deal with things at a federal level. And if you were to talk about the Gestapo, most of you would not be overly encouraged by hearing about secret police. It's like, no, 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 we don't want that. Harlan Stone, who was the Attorney General in 1924, is going to appoint J. Edgar Hoover. This is what he's gonna say, because everyone was aware, that everyone was concerned about a federal level secret police force being formed. And this is what he said. There is always a possibility that a secret police may be a menace to free government and free institutions because it carries with it the possibility of abuses of power which are not always quickly apprehended or understood. Because it's secret. If something's secret, that means it's not always known to the public of what is going on and what their decisions are because part of what they're trying to do is secretly trap villains. Secretly do this, but they have secret information that the public doesn't have, and then they use it to hopefully work on behalf of the common good. But what if they weren't working on behalf of the common good? Well, then a secret police could be dangerous. The invention of the professional policeman. See, up to this time, even some of you wouldn't look at the FBI as policemen, but that's exactly what they were. They were policemen. They were detectives. They were professional, though. They're not the local thugs. Back in this day, I mean, we have professional police forces, and that's just your local, like Windsor Police Force is a professional police force. But back in the day, policemen didn't have the best reputation. They were just like thugs is the way it was oftentimes understood. They were, they were disorganized. They didn't have you know, the big pile of papers on the desk. Like, I don't know what's going on in my town. You know, it's just bad things. You know, and they, they didn't have it. Then they would beat up someone to get information out of them. It's like, oh, okay, come on, come on. We're going to clean this up. And so the invention of what we're going to call the professional policeman... Gumshoes, those are detectives. You guys ever heard of a gumshoe? It's an old fashioned term. And I'm not sure if it came from the concept of sneaking, you know, in quiet uh, shoes so you don't, you know, like squeak as you go around there. Gumshoes. And so, gumshoes with brains, brawn, and boyish good looks. Boy, these FBI guys are very attractive. Oh, and of course, a suit tie and perfectly situated fedora on your head. I mean, these guys had the look, everything about it. And Hoover would oftentimes even pick guys that were attractive, handsome guys. It's like, what is the deal with that? Football players, like football players, bring on the football players, right? Make sure that they have a law degree or they're accountants. It's like, well, most football players don't have that. Well, let's see if we can find them. I mean, that's literally what the FBI is. It's a whole bunch of athletes that just happen to be smart. And that's like the makeup. They had to be white-skinned, though, but, by the way. Have I told you that? Yeah, this is the start of the FBI. Had to be white. So here's a, a picture of uh, some uh, G-men. And it's an intriguing picture to see. These guys are good. Okay, what they're going to do, what uh, J. Edgar Hoover is going to build is a police force that is very, very impressive, okay? So, for instance, I'll just give a, a, a short list. Now, I'm not gonna wanna give away too much because we're gonna hit on some of these things in the upcoming episodes, but Al Capone, because he is going to do something that is going to affect federal law, the FBI is going to get involved in that. Now, they're not actually the ones that are going to uh, end up getting him in Alcatraz, but they're gonna still be a part of that case. George Machine Gun Kelly, I mentioned that earlier, he was arrested in 1933. Now you're gonna notice something's gonna happen in 1934. Very interesting year for the FBI. This is literally almost every gangster, they are going to shoot dead. And so John Dillinger, Bonnie and Clyde, Babyface Nelson, Pretty Boy Floyd. Boy, 1934 was a bad year for the gangster and a very good year for the FBI. The FBI is going to become famous uh, in such a way where, I mean, literally every little boy wants to grow up to be a G-man. And they're struggling because every little boy was really interested in being Al Capone, John Dillinger, uh, you know, Babyface Nelson, and Pretty Boy Floyd. Now they're, they're sort of struggling. They're trying to figure out which way to go, and that's actually what J. Edgar Hoover is after. He wants everyone, all the little boys, to want to grow up to be G-men instead of outlaws because at this time, being an outlaw was a very fantastical idea to a lot of young boys because they lived free. They were like snubbing their nose at the government. I mean, look at these guys, they're raking it in. And so this is a very unique time when uh, models uh, are being made for for the little ones. 1924, in steps J. Edgar Hoover, the reformer arrives. There's a picture of a young J. Edgar Hoover. And uh, here's what FBI.org says. At the outset, the 29-year-old Hoover was determined to reform the Bureau quickly and thoroughly to make it a model of professionalism. He did it so by weeding out the political hacks and incompetence, laying down a strict code of conduct for agents, and instituting regular inspections of headquarters and field operations, He insisted on rigorous hiring criteria, including background checks, interviews, and physical tests for all special agent applicants. And in January of 1928, he launched the first formal training for incoming agents, a two-month course of instruction and practical exercises in Washington, D.C. Under Hoover's direction, new agents were also required to be 25 to 35 years old, preferably with experience in law or accounting. And so, this is going to be a very impressive troop. In fact, those that worked under Hoover are going to get the highest jobs around the country. I mean, a lot of police chiefs around the country are going to come straight out of the FBI. A lot of the high ranking guys in government are going to come out of the FBI. This is a really impressive system that is going to be built for excellence at this time. And that's the American people are just, they're desiring to see something like this. Beverly Gage, in her book, G-Man, said this. As bureau director, Hoover stressed expertise over tradition, order over chaos, human intelligence over superstition. He presented himself as an individualist for whom character and morals were as important as any paper credential. Though ostensibly a member of the law enforcement profession, he went out of his way to separate himself from ordinary policemen, whom he depicted as a cabal of corrupt, undereducated, easy-to-deceive thugs, A variety of police practices came in for special criticism, each said to embody the underhanded and unscientific approach that dominated the law enforcement profession. One was a so-called third degree in which police relied on beatings, threats, and torture to extract confessions from unwilling suspects. Another was the use of promises and inducements, especially monetary payments to get witnesses and informants to talk. Finally, there was the wiretapping of telephone calls, which Hoover derided as a form of entrapment and deception, better suited to gangsters than to government officials. He advocated adopting the latest in science, forensics, and psychology, modern forms of knowledge that would make such old-fashioned strong-arm techniques obsolete. He described this approach as a way to make the police more professional, a theme that would last for decades, even as Hoover retreated from some of his early reform ideas. So he's going to come in as the reformer. There was a corrupt system in America. I mean, even though none of us really like to think of the government going corrupt, but we had some corruption in the governmental side and those that were looking into the crimes oftentimes were participating in the crimes too. This ought not to be. And so Hoover is going to come in and he's going to clean house of all the old guys. And he's gonna get the old system, the old crony system out. And he's going to establish a new system. It's very impressive. I mean, when you study the history of the FBI, you have to at least sit back and go, huh, that's intriguing what he did. And he's a tough cookie. J. Edgar Hoover, even at the age of 29, I mean, this guy was something unusual in our country. And it, he's a hard guy to know how to talk about historically, because if he had just retired in the 1950s, he would have gone down as one of the most legendary Americans ever but he didn't and he is going to go through the civil rights era and he is going to paint for himself a reputation of I mean to many especially liberals he is going to be considered the worst character of the last 100 years the most demonic you know if you could say it that way I mean he was and not all for wrong reasons in other words if I'm going to look at it with with different glasses on because he was a conservative champion Right? But if I was to put on different glasses, I could see it. Like I say, yeah. This guy, this guy made some bad decisions and he was speaking out of two sides of his mouth. Oh yeah, we, we absolute integrity. We would never do that. And then he's doing it. And we have all the evidence of it today. It's all we know what was going on in the FBI back then. And it wasn't above board. And so it does make me feel very uncomfortable as I know all that was happening. Yeah, I could I could understand why you would say, that was lacking integrity. So, But what a system he is going to build. The scientific approach from facial recognition to fingerprint recognition. So when he comes in, he wants to emphasize science. This is a huge movement in our culture towards science at this time. Now, I already told you how science was already moving in our culture. Like the entire, at, the entire attitude of the white people towards the black was based on science, right? Do you remember that phrenology and do you remember that evolution and how it taught us that the black people came from a different animal source, you know, a more uh, rabid and, and aggressive one, which is all a bunch of bunk. I don't even believe in that, right? I don't, I'm not a, even an evolutionist. I'm a creationist. So. When it comes to these things, it's a bunch of bunk, but when you elevate science to actually support your political ideology, you're in a dangerous territory. We as believers always follow the word of God first. And that might sound like we're lacking intelligence. It's like, well, the modern science is saying this. If the modern science is somehow attempting to debunk the scriptures, I immediately question the modern science. And you you could call me an idiot for doing it, right? You could say, oh, well, yeah, that's rather uh, lacking some intellectual credentials there, Eric, and I would say, actually, it's doing the opposite. I believe that my God, who is the creator of the heavens and the earth, knows more than this idiot scientist over here. That is my position on it. So the scientific approach, I'm not against science. I mean, my my degree in, in college, I was doing a double major in biology and chemistry. So it's not like I'm against science. I have a lot of background in science, but I know that all science is just merely the language of God's creation. And so you want to know God, you you study science, and it should instruct you in who he is. If you're using science to try and debunk who God is, you're misusing it, because its entire purpose is to reveal him. So it's interesting to see how science can be used, and this is really fascinating to see how... Uh, Hoover is going to utilize science to actually increase the effectiveness of detective work. And so a lot of what we understand today, like the CSI type of stuff, that's coming out of Hoover uh, and, and his emphasis in the sciences to actually figure out how they can determine and be accurate with their deductions so they don't falsely accuse people, but that they can be accurate. So at the time, I know this is going to sound strange, but they had something called the Bertillion method, and it was based on a facial recognition, which, I mean, that's what we're, seem like we're going to even more so in the future, but back then, that was the science, and it was, uh, and then Hoover's going to swing us to something that is going to be scientifically proven to be more accurate than facial recognition, and that's fingerprints. So abandoning the the Bertillion method, and that, this is, uh, this really has nothing to do with my message other than it's, pure intriguing. And that's the Will West case. So the Bertillon method was this. It measured dozens of features of a criminal's face and body and recorded a series of precise numbers on a large card along with a photograph. And so here's a guy named William West, who is at Leavenworth Prison. And this is the picture they have. And there's different measurements they do with this picture, and they write them down on a card. And so what's gonna happen is another man is going to show up at Leavenworth Prison named Will West. Now, I'm gonna go back a slide. This is William West. And a, a character is gonna show up named Will West. And the Bertillon method of evaluation is gonna show them to be the same person. And of course, what you're saying is, uh, I think they are. <laughs> I mean, Eric, I'm not sure who you think I am, but I'm not that dumb. Yeah, those guys are the same guy. I mean, here's William West and here's Will West. And of course, some of you are thinking, uh, I think Will might be short for William, Eric? I mean, maybe we should just say, well, here's William West, and here's William West. No, no. This, one is William West, and the other is Will West. So they, Will shows up at Leavenworth Prison. The prison guard is immediately, as he checks the Bertillin method, and he's evaluating things, is like, wait a minute. We currently show that you are in prison cell, rah, rah, rah. And because William was in prison cell, I don't know what number, right? And so did this guy escape? Did he get caught and brought back in? What's going on here? So Leavenworth prison guard says, have you ever been to this? So he's not telling uh, Will West what he's seen. He's just going to ask him a question, see if he can get him to confess. Have you ever been to this prison before? Will West says, no, sir, I have not. Leavenworth prison guard says, I will ask you one more time have you ever been to this prison before? Never, says Will West. And he never had. They're two different people. They actually are going to go get William West out of the cell. They're two different people. Look at this. Is that the weirdest thing you've ever seen? (laughs) Now, what most people think is that these two were twins separated somehow at birth, right? They didn't know about each other. But that is, one of the <laughs> that is one of the strangest stories. But what this did is it showed that the Bertillon method was not foolproof, whereas fingerprints would have shown them to be two different people. So this is actually what is going to cause the, the Bertillon method, which had never had any other mistake ever, is actually going to be exposed to have a weakness. And so the fingerprint method is going to rise as uh, the, the next best. The Identification Division is what Hoover's going to build at the FBI, creating a central database for all U.S. fingerprints. And this is what we grew up in. I mean, this is just like common for all of us, but this is a huge thing where you have a guy who's ha- going to take on the audacious task of collecting and organizing. This is before computers. You, uh, fingerprints for every single U.S. citizen. Wow. So the, they would oftentimes they have a lot of pictures like this for the FBI where they would stage them because everything about Hoover he's very smart in regards to public opinion and how he represents himself. So he would like pose for these pictures, like be you know in a, be in a conversation, he's like take the picture with me like this, and he knew how to present himself where people would be like, oh, I like how clean and orderly this is. So they would set up these pictures, and you know that guy is just like reading something. It's like okay. Hold the pose, all right, Kshink. And I mean, I, I guess that's not abnormal, but it is sort of funny because all the pictures are like that, where they're all just perfectly still doing some studious work. Beverly Gage says it this way. In order to enact professionalism, Hoover needed professionals. As he boasted to the papers, after 1924, he required all new agents to possess either a legal or accounting degree. Markers of professional training and white-collar success. He also sought out men who would uphold the highest ideals of citizenship, refusing the temptations of alcohol, womanizing, bribery, even run-of-the-mill sloth. I want the public to look upon the Bureau of Investigation of the Department of Justice as a group of gentlemen, he informed a national magazine. And if the men here engaged can't conduct themselves in office as such, I will dismiss them. That's an understatement. People could get fired from the Bureau very quickly. It was both a statement of principles and a reminder that Hoover was at last in charge. Efficiency, modesty, merit, and golf. These would be the bywords of Hoover's more refined and distinctly more Protestant Bureau. So those that had controlled the crime uh, investigation world were Catholic before this time. And now, suddenly, we have a Protestant white man who has moved into this, which is going to actually play a part in this period of time that we are discussing because he is going to possibly, in the 1950s especially, be the most trusted man in our country, by by the country as a whole, not just like conservatives. In fact, he was not known as a conservative, even though I'm describing him as one, Compared to liberals today, he was a conservative. He was pro-America. He wanted to preserve the integrity of our country. Now this guy had issues, and I'm not gonna try and you know, cover those over and make them sound like they weren't issues, he really did. His leadership alone and his style was an issue, and how he treated people uh, for his own promotion was definitely something I do not want to stand behind. But he did build something rather uh, incredible. The FBI, spit, polish, hard work, and a bit of scientific exactitude will win the day. Every time. This was basically his policy. If we do this with excellence, we'll get it right every time. And, you know, that, that's, a, that's a nice motto. That sounds sort of like my upbringing right there. I mean, that, that my family really liked the FBI and I could sort of understand my upbringing right there. It's like, that, that sounds like the way I was trained. So listen to this. This is Hoover as he is coming into this, and this is what he's beginning to communicate to all the governmental uh, uh, influencers and to the public. This is his message. He's going to give America a promise because we've had corruption in the police side of things, but we're going to clean this up. And here are three things that he is not going to do, right? Number one. We will never give the third degree. Do you guys remember what the third degree was? That's when you beat someone up, you intimidate them, you give them pain, whatever shock treatment is necessary so that they confess, so that they give up information. We will never do that. That's thuggishness. We will not do that in the FBI. We will never pay off informants. We're not going to bend so low as to give money to someone so that they can give us information. Come on. That's like the old classic corrupt police work. We will never wiretap. After all, we are not thugs, we are professionals. If you study the FBI, what I just mentioned that was stated that they would never do is what they are most known for doing. That's the great irony here. And there's a reason why I'm bringing that up, because that's part of my message today. Remember, this is spiritual lessons from black and white America. I'm not just trying to teach you on the FBI. I'm trying to bring something up so that we can understand something. You can have the makeup of pursuing excellence with diligence and hard work. And you can put spit and polish on the outside. And you can make your statements, your bold statements of how you are going to do this. But if you don't have power from another realm living inside of you, you will fall flat on these amazing-sounding statements of promise. So I'm going to, remember we said the FBI. Now this is like the message that's full of all sorts of acronyms. So the NFCL, that's uh, the newly forming Christian life, right? That's us. So we're not a part of the FBI, but we're part of the NFCL. And this is what many of us have a tendency to think makes up an excellent Christian the same way that the FBI was convinced that if they just work hard, if they do it with professionalism, if they do it morally and no one drinks alcohol, well, guess what? We're going to change the world. We are thinking spit, polish, gritted teeth, and a bit of legalistic attentiveness to every detail will win the day every time. This is just our default, guys. This is how we work. We start, the way we're starting is very similar to the way Hoover is going to start the FBI. We mean well. We really do. And we're like vowing. We're promising. We're, we're making all sorts of statements when we first pop out of the spiritual womb. We're like, I can't believe I've been doing this in my life. No more. I'm never doing that again. And we make our vows. We make our statements. We you know, issue our... our our statements to the media, you know, the guy comes in and says, really, is this really what you're planning to do? Yes, this is the way I'm living from this day forth. So remember how Hoover had his version of this? Well, we have our nevers and promises too. I will never, I promise. Number one, I will never allow an impure thought again. I can't tell you how many men have made this declaration in front of me. I've heard this declaration made. And I am very quick to say, hey, let's, let's, let's approach this different, but they mean well. They really do. I will never do this. I will never speak an unkind word again. I mean, you've been speaking all sorts of unkind words, but never again. You will never do that. I will never grumble or complain again. After all, I'm no longer a thug. I'm a child of God. You're right. And what you are after and what you desire is actually good. What Hoover is desiring is a good thing. He wants to bring order to something. He wants to help clean up a nation that is literally headed towards depravity. I mean, go Hoover! And I could say, go young Christian! That's wonderful, and I love your attitude. However, when you start as a Christian, you oftentimes are shortchanged in your full understanding of how it works. So though you mean well, you don't understand that in and of yourself, you don't have the capacity to do that. So when you actually don't do that and you fail in your mission, what the FBI is going to do is cover it up. So the FBI is going to create an elaborate front, you know, where they are going to write books about all their cases and they're going to say all the things they're doing and they're going to have an elaborate cover up of all the things that they didn't do according to what they said they were going to do. And what I want to say for us as believers is we don't want to do the same. We don't want to pull an FBI. We don't want to mean well, make bold statements, fail in those statements, and then create a double life where part of our life is coded and covered up and hidden, and the other one is like saying what everyone knows we should be saying. It's like, oh, yeah, purity is just such a wonderful thing. You're just keeping every thought, you know, taking every thought captive to the will of Christ Jesus. Yeah, that's exactly right. Meanwhile, you're not taking every thought captive to the will of Christ Jesus. Meanwhile, you know, it's like, oh, and you always speak kindly to everyone. And meanwhile, you're not speaking kindly to everyone. Well, that's not the sort of way we want to live. We want to confess our sins one unto the other. When we fall short, we want to acknowledge, but the FBI couldn't do that. See, if the FBI starts acknowledging that it's wiretapping, <laughs> that it's using third degree because it needs to get this information out of the mafia and they are not talking, if we don't get this now, we're going to lose this case. We, we, have, we have an hour before this guy gets on that plane. We need to know. And so then they revert to a tactic that they promised they would never do. Well, this is classic. Human is what it is, guys. I mean, we could talk about it in the big case with the FBI, but we could also talk about it in the small case with us. We have our reasons why. We only have an hour. We have to get this done. Whatever it is, there are justifications and rationalizations that we create in our life to cloak and to cover up for our failures. But there is a better way to live than just to make a bold promise and fail. God actually intends us to live with excellence. Hoover's attention to detail, it's legendary. It really is. I mean, if you were to have in your Christian life the same attitude, you would be called a legalist is what you would be. And you would be a very good one at that. This guy... Took everything seriously. Every little fingerprint had to be handled a certain way. And if he, I mean, he would examine the files, he would go through and check on things, he would walk through and make sure that everyone's shoes are polished, their tie is straight. I mean, he was after excellence in the most micro way that it would drive you crazy if he was your boss, right? I mean, this guy was really difficult to live under. So PTM gives his best attempt at mimicking the FBI. So again, we're going with acronyms today. And, and look at after this, is says, and fails miserably. Now, PTM, I don't know how well you guys know Eric and know all my different names, but PTM is one of my nicknames, Perfectly Timed Man. And so when I was in missionary school, I was perfectly timed. But even before that, that's just where I got the nickname, because I would wake up at the same time, and I always like to wake up at an odd number, like 441. Uh, and so I would wake up at like 4.41 every day, and I would wake everyone else up. So it's like, hey, yeah, yeah Ludi, could you get me Ludie, could you get me up tomorrow for breakfast? It's like, yeah, what time? <laughs> and it's like, okay. And so I would then be the alarm clock for everyone else. And, you know, and when it was like special mornings, like uh, you know, pancake morning, you know, it's like, hey, yeah, get, get me up tomorrow morning. And then so I get the guy up, and he doesn't get up because he's so tired, he like falls back to sleep. And then he gets mad at me. It's like, no, no, I woke you up. And so, PTM, when you're the perfectly timed man, you expect very high things out of your life and performance. Because if I can get up at the same time every day, I'm guessing I could keep every thought clean. I could keep every word kind. I mean, why not? I genuinely felt like I could do this now that I was a believer. Imagine how disheartening it was for me who could be so perfectly timed in certain areas of my life, but I had no capacity to reveal Jesus consistently. Oh, because I thought of it as a discipline, not as a life change. I didn't understand that there had to be power to do these things. I felt like I had to, I possessed it, didn't I? I don't have it, guys. I failed miserably. I made vows, I mean, to God and to others, like, I will never do this again. I mean, I'm done with that. And then, uh, then I did it again. And that's a hard thing to live with. If you've ever gone through that cycle, which is probably every single one of us in here, where you make a strong statement to God, you make a strong statement to others, you're done with something, and then you find yourself back at that vomit, licking it up like a dog. I mean, it doesn't taste good, number one. There's no satisfaction in it, and you're disgusted with yourself and the enemy's on your back going, look at you, call yourself a Christian. Oh. This is a miserable way to live. And this isn't the way God intended us to live. I just want you to know that. The pursuit of excellence is not the problem. The fact that you desire to do things well, that's actually not the problem. That's a good quality. So we need to extract out this desire to do things well and why and how we're doing them. Why, why do we want to do things well? Because that's part of our problem. Sometimes we want to do things well because We feel like God will overlook our previous misbehaviors in life and we will somehow earn back his favor if we do things well. That's actually a really bad motive because you don't understand the gospel then. You don't understand what Jesus Christ did on the cross if you think that by doing things well now, you are somehow offsetting bad things that you did. That isn't how Christianity works. The other reason we might do things well is because we want to impress. We're funny people, aren't we? I mean, parents, church people, leaders in our life, like bosses in the, in the business world. It's like, we want. you should have seen these guys work for Hoover. These guys were legalists in their own life. They, they disciplined their life, why? To try and appease Hoover. God and Hoover are not the same. And yet many of us think God is Hoover and these guys were living under this legalistic weight. I mean, show up at, on time, they, if Hoover stayed late, they all stayed late. It was like one of those classic movies where you see one guy walking around and all of his guys with their suitcases walking around after him, and you know, if he stands, they stand. If he sits, they sit. That's the FBI, right there. And Hoover was that sort of a leader. Praise God that God is not like Hoover. That God is not saying, yeah, are you doing it perfectly? Hey, you didn't stand when I stood. You're fired. That's literally how these guys felt. If they had a crumb on their chin from lunch, they could be gone. I don't know that it was that extreme, but that's the way it felt in that environment. So the pursuit of excellence is not the problem. How are you pursuing that excellence and why? You see, if you're pursuing it to convince your parents that they made a mistake in saying you'd never amount to something. Oh boy, that's a, that's a bait. Or how about that one uncle that always like spoke down to you? Or how about your schoolmates at school and they always treated you like refuse and you want to prove when you come back for your reunion, your class reunion, that you amounted to something And so you want to do what you do with excellence, but your motive of why you're doing it is actually counter to the kingdom of heaven. You will fail, by the way. It doesn't mean you won't accomplish great things in your life, but spiritually you're going to wither because there is no life there. And then how are you going about it? I mean, classic human, we dig in our pockets, we find whatever strength, whatever talent, whatever ability we have, Whatever time, whatever uh, resource, and we invest it all. We put it all in on our success. Yeah, all my chips are going in. I need this to win. All right, roll the dice. Am I going to make it? You see, when we try and do this in our own strength, it's just a guarantee. It does not mean we won't succeed financially. It does not mean that we won't have people impressed with us. But spiritually, we will wither up and die. This is not how it works. And yet, this is our bent our bent for solving the ills of our life is the same as America's bent was to solve the ills of the 1920s. Let's establish our professional police force that will put down all of this evil in our culture. And many people would argue after a hundred years, isn't it funny, a hundred years since Hoover Uh, Entered in this is like the anniversary, guys. This is sort of a fun moment. We can celebrate 100 years of uh, Hoover, 1924, him coming into his role. But even after 100 years, most people would say our country is worse because of what the FBI did. Now that is a that's an interesting thing to contemplate. What we don't want to do is approach this in the wrong way. We, we have the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's do this right. Right-handedness. Right-handedness is a term that I have used uh, since before Ellerslie started. It's not one that you may have heard me use since we started, since you have been here at Ellerslie. But I'm going to introduce it to you. The right side of the body, and I think I've mentioned this to you before, is, is, the, is the side of strength and control and power. So in the Hebrew, every body part has a meaning, like the forehead, a place of decision, right? The nose, discernment. You know, all of these things have a place. The right side of the body is the side of power, strength, authority. The right arm is the saving arm, okay? So we are saved by God's right arm. Isn't that just a weird way of saying it? But that's his right hand, his right arm. This is the saving And so when you recognize that Jesus is going to sit down at the right hand of the Father, you're going to recognize in that that he, because the left is dependence, Jesus is going to submit his left to the Father, which means he's dependent upon the Father, and he is going to receive the Father's right arm. He's going to receive the Father's authority, the Father's strength, the Father's power, and that's what he's sharing with us. So what Jesus is going to save us with is, in a sense, the extension of the Father's right arm. The Father loves us so much that he is going to give his only begotten Son. And so right-handedness would be us attempting in our own right hand to save ourselves. You see, we have a certain amount of strength. You can't, you can't say that humanity doesn't have anything in its own right hand. We have a lot, and it's pretty impressive. And I think I said this before, we build the Olympic Games to show what men can do. I mean, that's what it is. It's like, hey, let's show off the right-handedness of men. Look at how impressive we are. Yeah, but there is nothing eternal that we can produce out of our own right arm. And so when it comes to spiritual things, we cannot produce the life of Jesus. We cannot produce the righteousness of God. We cannot produce the holiness of God. We cannot produce the purity of God. We can only esteem it. We can only look at it and go, wow, and then try. But we will fall short. So right-handedness, it's attempting in your own strength, willpower, discipline, and determination to mimic divine perfection. Now, this is where we run into trouble as believers. Because we see the standard, be holy as I am holy, be perfect as I am perfect. When you're struck on one cheek, turn to them the other also. You're supposed to have love for your enemies. You're supposed to have joy that is full. You're supposed to have peace that passes understanding. Now, what's ironic is we see the scripture, but we don't recognize that is impossible for us. So we actually, in our own right-handedness, try and marshal this sort of life, and we can't seem to get it. We can't get it to work, but that doesn't mean God doesn't intend you to have it. It just means you need to recognize that you, in and of your own capacity, do not have it. God wants to give it to you. Huh? Well, how does that work? What? And this is Christianity. Hudson Taylor called it the exchange life. It's like, Eric, you want that? Yes, I, I really do. I'm tired of being PTM and failing. I really have a desire to do this well. Okay, that's a good desire, Eric. And I appreciate that desire in you. I placed it there. But to have that, you need to give up your life. You need to let go of your way. You need to give up your motives, your ambitions, your drive, and hand it over to me. I'm going to hand like all of that over? That's like my future. That's my hope. That's like who I am. Yeah. I'd like you to come to the cross and die so that I can give you my life. I can give you my dreams and desires, that they can fill you instead of your own. And if you exchange life with me, you will find that you will have inside of you my Holy Spirit, my power, my ability. And so even though in and of yourself, you can't do this, I can do it in you and through you. And that's Christianity. That's the secret the FBI never learned. Psalm 44.3 for they did not gain possession of the land by their own sword. So this is speaking of Israel. How did they get the land of promise? It wasn't by their own right-handedness. It wasn't by their own sword. Nor did their own arm save them. But it was your right hand, your arm, and the light of your countenance because you favored them. was well, not that a great summation of Christianity right there? How did you gain the land of promise in your life? How did you gain this revelation of the unseen realm in and through you? Well, it wasn't by your own sword. It wasn't by your own might, your own energies, your own discipline. It was by his. It's called grace in the New Testament. It's God's right arm working in you and through you. We are saved by it. We were saved by it 2,000 years ago when his right arm came to this earth and, and, and dealt with sin in our life. And we are saved by it today when we, believing in that work of the cross, yield to Jesus and allow him to fill us with his holy life, his Holy Spirit, so that now his right arm can work in us and through us to accomplish something that no mere man could ever do. Isaiah 64, 6, We are all like an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. All our attempts with our right hand all of our efforts to be like the divine are filthy in God's sight. Colossians 2, 20 23. And this is the one I, I quoted earlier. Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle. Yeah, yeah, that'll work. That's our own right hand. That's us attempting in our own strength to discipline our life to please God. And what Paul says is, these things indeed have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion, false humility and neglect of the body. But they are of no value against your real problem, against the indulgence of the flesh. You see, you have a problem. It's called the principle of sin. And not touching, not handling, not tasting does nothing to actually root out the problem. America has a very real problem in the 20s. And getting a professional police force, I'm not saying it's a bad idea. But I'm saying it's actually not going to bring spiritual revival to our nation. What we need in this nation, just like we needed it in 1920, is Jesus. We are the caretakers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. A nation will be changed when its heart is transformed. Not because its laws are changed, and not just because a professional police force is established that works with rigorous discipline. I'm not saying it's bad to change laws or to have a police force that functions with rigorous discipline. But if you want to get to the heart, just like in your life, if you want to change things, you can't just change how you dress. You can't just change your hairdo. You can't just change the way you wake up in the morning and the way you go to sleep at night. Those things can have a beneficial package and beneficial help to your Christian life, but they will not change your heart. You need Jesus to do that. You need the power of God in you to transform you. Christianity, believing that God's right hand alone can produce this extraordinary excellence and then yielding to his way for seeing that excellence worked in and through the human life. Philippians 3, 8 through 9, I have suffered the loss of all things for Christ Jesus my Lord and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law. It's not you trying to do things just right. I'm not... This is the reason I came to Christ. It's not me having my own righteousness, but that which is through faith. So the righteousness that is through faith in Christ. The righteousness which is from God by faith. That's the great secret right there. Hebrews 8.1. Now this is the main point of the things we are saying. Oh, that sounds important. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. This is the sum. We have one who has done it for us who is righteousness for us. Look who he is. Look what he has accomplished, not what you can accomplish. Look what he has accomplished and find your rest in that. Titus 3.5. It's not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration, the renewing of the Holy Spirit. G-men excellence. Have you ever thought of taking the name G-men and maybe switching instead of government men? It's God men? Oh, there we go. See, that's, that's a whole new spin on this. We could be G men. Some of the ladies in here are like, well, I, I'm not, G, G, uh, what, what would it be? W? No, wait a minute. God men, G men, G women. Oh, you're G women. Boy, that was a hard one for me to figure out. It shouldn't have been that hard. <laughs> so God men excellence. Is it a thing? Does God intend us to be excellent in what we do? Isn't that an interesting question in all of this? Because it could sound like I'm saying, no, no, we don't care about doing things with excellence. That's what Hoover did. And Hoover was just like way out of whack and you know he was way too extreme. Actually, God desires excellence in us. Listen to this Titus 3.8. This is right after a portion of scripture I just read. This is a faithful saying. And these things I want you to affirm constantly that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable to men. So good works should be maintained. This is what we do. Now, our focus in the Christian life isn't good works. Our focus in the Christian life is Jesus. But like Paul, when he was going out on his missionary journeys with Barnabas, he is going to be reminded by, by Peter, James, and John to remember the poor when he goes. And they said, the very thing I was intending to do. You see, it's both and. You make Jesus your focus, you rely on his power, and then you do the work of Jesus, which is always good works. So I'm going to change this scripture. I just changed something on the screen. So instead of good, it says, uh, those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain kalos work. That's the Greek. Kalos works. So what in the world is that? So I have my amplified version of this. This is a faithful saying, and these things I want you to affirm constantly, That those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain beautiful, handsome, excellent, eminent, choice, surpassing, precious, useful, suitable, commendable, admirable, magnificent, genuine, approved, praiseworthy, noble, and honorable works. These things are good and profitable to men. God desires you to do what you do with excellence. That's not the problem here in this this discussion. It's how and why you are doing what you're doing. So first, why? For his glory, for his honor. I want to please him. I want to know him more. I want every blockade in this generation to be mowed down so that this world could see him too. How? Well, it's not by my strength because I can't do it, it's his strength. Jesus lives inside of me, and he does the works. I'm simply a flow through vehicle, I'm like an instrument that he plays, and he plays beautiful music. Father, I ask that you would train us in this life of dependence the life of God, the grace of God, would flow through us and change this world around us. It's in the precious name of Jesus that we pray this. Amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder episodes are released every day, Monday through Friday, from our campus in Windsor, Colorado. And our weekly sermon is delivered live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings with a delayed live stream available at noon Mountain Time. Go to ellerslie.com forward slash daily to get all the details. Thanks for listening.